Welcome to ACUM Insight, the weekly podcast about higher education by the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities in Massachusetts. This week, ACUM Senior Vice President and General Counsel Rob McCarran interviews Dan Egan, President of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Rhode Island. To begin, here's Rob McCarran. Good afternoon, I'm Rob McCarran, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at ACOM. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of ACOM Insight, which is our podcast that highlights the people, policies, and programs associated with higher education in Massachusetts. This week, we're going a little outside Massachusetts, and we'll be speaking with Dan Egan, who is president of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Rhode Island. So we're going a little south and uh, talking to our friend uh, Dan, who has been, um, he's been the fifth president of ACU Rhode Island since uh, January of 2007. Prior to joining um, ACU Rhode Island, Dan served as chief of staff in the office of the Dean of Medicine and Biological Science in the Division of Biology and Medicine at Brown University. That's quite a title. (laughs) Uh, He's a graduate of Providence College and received his Master's of Arts degree from ACOM member Boston College. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Dan, to ACOM Insight. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So uh, 2020 has been pretty easy and slow for you so far. (laughs) I've taken more vacation this year than I know that's it's been it's been a grind and you know that better than anyone. Massachusetts, but we've been really fortunate with, with great members, um, and we've been able to survive um, the repopulation of our campuses, we think, very successfully with a few hiccups, but uh, managed thus far, and we're pretty pleased in the direction we're headed. Yeah, so clearly, you know, COVID has been the issue for college universities in Massachusetts and, and Rhode Island, um, and, you know, Massachusetts um, has approached this uh, as a slow process. Um a very thoughtful process. The governor created a uh, reopening advisory board. And um, on that was, uh, we were fortunate to have our our board chair, Lori Leshen, who's president of WPI, and she was on the governor's reopening advisory board and and thought it was really important to pull together um, a higher ed working group. And that group consisted of uh, 14 college presidents pulling from both public and private uh, institutions, large research universities, smaller liberal arts colleges, commuter colleges and with, uh, with non-residential uh, schools and also community colleges. And so we had the full, um, the full diversity of higher education in Massachusetts. And that, that, that laid the groundwork for how schools were going to think about and plan for reopening in the fall. What, what did Rhode Island, um, how did they approach it? Well, pretty in a similar fashion, but uh, slightly more iterative. Um, slightly, um, obviously, we're a small state with 11 institutions of higher learning, eight in the independent sector and three public institutions. So, you know, we get to 11 and we had three less people at the table than you did just on your working group representing more, more than 100 schools in Massachusetts. So our working group, um, working with the Department of Health directly um, to establish, you know, some spinoff working groups. But the, the global group really assessed and what campuses could do. Um, looked for guidance from the Department of Health primarily on social distancing, on spacing issues on campus. And the, the biggest issue that really took up most of the time was the testing. Um, and that was, you know, again, an iterative process that took a long time, how much was needed, what was needed. Um, and that was um, the kind of the crux of it. But I think at the end of the day, when we talked to cross state lines in our region and nationally, I think the Rhode Island process uh, mirrored the Massachusetts process. Um, but at the end of the day, was we felt felt was very successful um, in getting the institutions to a point where they could repopulate their campuses safely. And I'm proud to say uh, that to date, 
all 11 institutions, the eight in the association, um, have repopulated um, in, a, in a fairly safe way with you know, minor outbreaks and, and clusters at some institutions to date. I think you're supposed to knock on wood when you say that. <laughs> I've been knocking on wood a lot lately. <laughs> it's, uh, I guess, cautious optimism, I think, is, is what we're thinking. As you think about what's happened since uh, students have started to come back, um, and a lot of schools staggered that kind of reopening um, process. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, the collaboration and cooperation and, and really, um, you know, our um, uh, also on our board is uh, – Paula Johnson, the president of um, Wellesley College, um, and she's also been chairing our testing group, which is really focused in on you know what testing will be available. Uh, just this afternoon, she te- she testified before our um, joint committee on higher education, and one of the things she commented on um, is the is is the level of collaboration, cooperation amongst and between institutions, you know, on campus between institutions, and also. You know, you and I talk a lot. Uh, we talk with our colleague, Jen, in, in Connecticut, Jen Widness. Um, and there is this unprecedented level of, of collaboration and cooperation as, as folks try to deal with and respond to the disruptions that have been caused by, by COVID. Um, I think there's no way to look at that. And there's no better example to look at that than the Broad Institute and what ACUM was able to do with its leadership, um, with its work with uh, Broad and and getting the testing process up that would work across Massachusetts, and then sharing that sharing that opportunity with the southeastern Massachusetts, uh, southeastern New England schools, Rhode Island and Connecticut, and I think you went out to New York as well, and some in northern northern New England. So we were really pleased. I think at, at, at this point, the testing has been the key. Broad is um, a partner with six of our eight institutions that um, are doing the te- are doing testing with Broad. It has been successful to to date. It's. It's been it's been really remarkable for the state of Rhode Island. We have a million million residents, about a sixth the size of Massachusetts. We're geographically one of the smaller states, forty by forty miles. Um, but what's what's interesting when you get to the testing, we've had a tremendous amount of success helping the state to lower its positivity rate by virtue of how many tests we're doing. Um, the state of Rhode Island, a million folks, as I as I indicated earlier, has tested close to eight hundred thousand tests. Um, nearly 80% of the population. Now, when you take unique, it's probably close to 40% of the population. Those are, there are a lot of repeats in there. But when you look at that 800,000 number, um, close to or more than 150,000 of those tests were performed through Broad and through the institutions in their effort to repopulate safely and really look at public health in a way that they would have a positive impact on the state. Unfortunately, the flip side to that for Rhode Island is while we've lowered our positivity rate, um, Rhode Island gets held to an unfortunate standard with its peers in New England and across the country when you look at the 100 per 1,000 count. Yeah. Um, you know, our, and, and, and unfortunately, when you're testing a lot, 800,000 tests across a million people, which Rhode Island is either second or one on uh, t- number of tests per capita, when you're testing, um, you know, aggressively, as our institutions are, your number is going to be higher. And then I think more importantly, Institutions of higher ed in the state of Rhode Island with their student base and faculty and staff probably make up or are public and private 120,000 of a million population. So you're aggressively testing 12% of your population. You're probably going to get 100 per 100,000 very quickly. And we've seen that happen. Um, But when you look at the overall other side of the numbers, um, the positivity rate is really the most important rate. And we've been institutionally lowering the state's rate in half from about three. Three and a half, four percent to about two, one and a half, one percent 
over that time. We've got a slight uptick right now. We anticipate that there'll be fluctuations in that. And I guess this is another opportunity, Rob, where you're knock on wood. Um, but to date, the contact tracing, the small outbreaks we've had at two or three institutions at this point appear to be contained. And we can't thank Broad and the partnership with ACOOM as well more uh, for, for, that, for that activity and success to date. Yeah, the, you mentioned the Broad Institute and Eric Lander and his team there. What, what they have done um, to make it possible for schools to bring students and faculty and staff safely back to campus has truly been remarkable, and it's just a great example of, of public service. I mean, they have um, the Broad Institute is a genome research facility. Uh, it's not a COVID testing facility. But when they saw what was happening in March, uh, over the course of 13 days, they pivoted to become a COVID uh, testing facility and really helped the state of Massachusetts um, get uh, the COVID, the spread of COVID uh, much, uh, much more under control. And then they turned their attention to see who else they could help and, and, and saw higher ed um, and then really stepped up and partnered with, with higher education, you know, focusing first on Massachusetts, but then realizing um, the need went beyond Massachusetts. And as you said, you have uh, six of eight of your institutions are part of the Broad. We have 43 schools in Massachusetts that are participating in the program. Uh, I know schools in, in Vermont and Maine, um, Eastern New York, Connecticut are also uh, part of what is really um, an incredible model and example um, you know, for the rest of the country and the federal government as to what is possible and what can happen when you have um, robust surveillance testing. And well, that, I think, what, I think the, that all those points are valid. The most important point to come out of it was Broad was able to kind of flatten the earth and make it, make it equitable for all institutions. You and I had numerous conversations in March, April, and May. You know, how are some of the institutions that are tuition-driven, have real fiscal pressures, um, are under significant fiscal strain with lost revenue um, due to the COVID? How are they going to be able to afford a testing system that could, um, that you know, those with a little bit more resources could afford more freely? And Broad did that. Broad yeah. did it in a very cost-effective way. So beyond the science, um, which they should have been applauded for, is the economic impact that they were able to to, to make it equitable across a number of institutions, regardless of the institution's means, and therefore across the region, open up and repopulate uh, communities that um, really were, were struggling for financial, for struggling for economic impact. Um, so it's it's a broader it's a broader story than than science. It's an economic success as well, I think. And, and yeah, what they did um, again, I use, I use the word remarkable because um, they not only created a test that was that's very um, effective. Um, to to detect the virus, but as you said, it's it's the most it was the most cost effective um, option that was out there by by a wide margin uh, and a huge factor, and it made it possible for schools to think, um, okay, we might be able to do this, and and, and again, surveillance testing uh, became the key because it allowed, um, based on data, folks were seeing, it allowed schools to think about how can we look at our student body, our faculty the, uh, and staff that are facing um, the students that are on campus and, and do a surveillance testing that detects those, those, um, those people who are asymptomatic, who are not showing any symptoms and yet can still spread the virus, finding them early and then doing the necessary work to isolate those if they test positive and quarantine anyone that's come in close contact uh, with that person. Um, it, it was only the testing that allowed that, that to work. And that uh, so that, you know, everyone expected there to be positive cases on campus because, you know, this, the virus is so easy to spread. And so it, it wasn't designed to stop those cases. It was designed to detect them as soon as possible and respond accordingly.
accordingly. And as we said, it is um, so far, it seems to be doing um, doing exactly that and helping to limit the spread. Well, and you applauded them for the pivot as well. I think the pivot was masterful to go off what their base was and, and pivot quickly to be able to do not in, and get away from the PCR. Really, I think you've had a test. I don't know if you've had the PCR on the back of your nose. Yeah. I have not, but I've heard it's pretty unpleasant. And their, the, the mechanism delivery for their test is a, is a, is a fairly simple nasal swab. Um, and I think that that was impressive. I think we anticipate, you know, we're sitting here now, we're beginning to see some uptick across the region, uh, both in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and also in Connecticut and New York, as anticipated as the weather changes and folks get inside more. So we're, um, we're also anticipating that there's other ways, there's saliva tests, there's other ways to test effectively. And our guess is that Eric Landers and his crew are already thinking about ways that they can pivot yet again. Um, at least we're hoping that, and we have faith in that. So uh, I think we're looking at some opportunities for the second semester, should we get to that point, which I... I think um, we owe it to the students, we owe it to our communities um, to get there safely. And I think that Grove will probably continue to be a successful partner in that going forward. No, you're right. And part of the process that Massachusetts used, um, uh, we, we created what we call, what we refer to as our higher ed testing group. And it's chaired by, by Paula Johnson, um, who, you know, she's, in addition to being a college president, is also a cardiologist, an epidemiologist, a former professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. And so it really brings an interesting uh, array of talent interest to this, um, the topic that is COVID. Um, and she has chaired this group, and, and it's not just, uh, it's again, it's a mixture of public and private uh, leaders from higher ed, but it's also tapped into, um, you know, the healthcare world of, of Massachusetts. I mean, like Rhode Island, Massachusetts, we're known for our eds and meds. That's what drives our economy, and we're incredibly fortunate to have that. And the ability to tap into what is really a blue ribbon panel of experts, um, of epidemiologists and uh, people like Rochelle Walensky from Mass General Hospital and, and you know, modelers who can look at data and, and say what's gonna, how, that, how this is going to play out if you have so many infections, um, positive cases on campus. And it's just an incredible lineup of talent that has really looked at uh, testing and they're, and they're the ones that said, you know, we, we need to reach out to the Broad and see how we can partner with them. But um, they didn't stop working after the Broad testing program was put into place. They're still meeting. And, and, and in fact, we'll be meeting again tomorrow to think about where does testing go from here? Where, where, where will it evolve to, you know, what will be the new technology, new science? Um, and are there other things that you could be layering into this? Because testing, uh, I think it's clear testing is one uh, one tool that schools have to use to think about COVID um, and responding to it. It's also, it's mask wearing, it's social distancing, it's reconfiguring dining halls and um, residential facilities and ventilation and, and cleaning. It, it's it's a whole um, the whole threshold of, of, of steps that schools are taking, a, a multi-layered approach to this and testing is one part of it. And, the, and this testing group is continuing to meet to think, Okay, where does this go? What's next? Is there a different test that we should be looking at? Should we be looking at, um, you know, the testing of wastewater from dorms, it, it, everything, and just always trying to, with the idea that uh, we will bring the best, most current information to college and university presidents as they think about what does the rest of the fall look like and what does the spring look like? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we did focus a lot on testing today, but I think that we touched on the probably most important part is the social distancing and the masking. You and I have had conversations over the past few weeks. When we look at where the outbreaks have been and where there's been small clusters on campuses, um, we, no one that we can find in the Northeast and across the country can trace 
spread to a classroom. You know, and obviously the biggest concern for Department of Health and Public Health in Massachusetts was the congregate care living, the congregate care setting, or the congregate setting of a dorm, right? And so that's where it's the apartment building's dorm, and it's where the masks are coming off. And so I think you know we spent a lot of time as institutions, and you've seen it yours, really focusing on behavior. Um, and that's a that's a it's a it's a hard line to walk with a young independent student body on campuses. But for the most part, we, we probably see, and I think we could guesstimate, compliance on campus is near 100%. Compliance off campus is where we probably see some failures, um, but we still see success rates of 75 to 80%. And our DBR, Department of Business Regulation, will, will prove from its regulatory reviews of businesses around campuses and just their view of the, their review of the community, um, that there is a huge, huge mask wearing compliance in that. And we just need to do as much or as good of a job as we can to communicate that to the students and get them to be as compliant as possible. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, 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 that goes to the fact that this is a community-wide um, process to, to adherence is a community-wide um, and community-driven mission. And so that everyone needs to do what is their part. And, you know, and, and I think, again, when we're thinking about how the Broad t- testing project uh, program was put into place, we're also thankful that, um, you know, Governor Baker in Massachusetts and his team, Secretary Pizer, Secretary Sutters, invested in the Broad and, and made a, a capital investment in the Broad so that, the, you know, the, they could get that process rolling and actually get keep the price uh, for testing at a very modest amount. So, you know, we're thankful for that partnership. We're thankful for the partnerships with local boards of health that have also stepped in and helped with contact tracing when there are cases. And so it is, it, you know, it's all these different pieces that have to come together and stay together. And, and you know, as you said, adherence to um, the social distancing and mask wearing uh, hygiene is all is all so key to it. But you also mentioned briefly uh, before we conclude, um, you know, having the students back and just the, the economic impact of that. And, and, it, and like Massachusetts, it's 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 a driving force of, of um, and a benefit of colleges, universities in, in Rhode Island. Yeah, well, I think you see it and I see it. Both our offices are in downtown centers. I'm in Providence. You're in Massachusetts. Um, the workforce has dried up. Um, folks are, in, are working remote. They're not coming to the office. Um, just across the street, as we look out here in Providence at the State House, the coffee shop just closed uh, two weeks ago. Um, so you know, people are struggling. Um, and I think the institutions bringing uh, those students back safely, following those, those protocols, adhering to the being compliant to mask wearing, um, you know, and, and to our state has been just like Massachusetts aggressive in that. And so I think we, that compliance number is, is high. So within the community, the 30,000 students that um, come to Rhode Island to be educated um, at our institutions alone, the eight privates, I think uh, for the most part have had been able to interject um, some turnaround in the economy and do so in a safe manner. Yeah, because I know when our reopening advisory board and, and the higher ed working group uh, presented to the reopening advisory board, it had some guiding principles, and, and you know the first one was to do thing, whatever we do, it was it was going to be to protect, um, to do it in a way that protects the health and safety of students, faculty, staff, and the surrounding communities. But another guiding principle was doing what we could as a sector to protect the the Massachusetts economy because. Um, you know, like Massachusetts and Rhode Island, it's the, uh, the colleges are such a critical driver. They're huge employers. They're huge purchases of service and goods. Uh, and, and they educate the workforce of, of, of 
tomorrow. And it's the, the talent that gets attracted to Massachusetts and Rhode Island um, that comes here to, to learn and be part of the hiring community, but then stay after to create companies and, and, and join those companies that are already here. Um, it's just so critically important that they're here, they're spending while they're here, they're, they're going into the local restaurants, coffee shops, and, and you know, doing it safely and bringing them back and bringing back that economic benefit is, is just a, a huge component to, um, to taking the steps to you know, move um, closer to getting beyond this. Well, and I think you know it's interesting. We're down. We're just we're the mirror image yet, a smaller one six size of Massachusetts, and we're fortunate. We're fortunate that we have eleven institutions of higher learning, very diverse. Um, we're the second largest non government employment sector outside of healthcare, and I think that probably is the same for Massachusetts. So I, you know, I echo what you said. It's it is it is the livelihood of both our states, um, and it's important to do um, to do this to to repopulate, get students here learning. It's important for students' mental health. It's important important for employees, um, and it's important for the community at large. So um, we're, we're pleased um, that we've had the opportunity to do it in a safe manner, and we hope we continue to do that going forward through the end of the year. And I completely agree, and, and uh, you know, much like the last seven months, you know, we had this uh, a list of other topics we were going to get to, but uh, as usual with most of our meetings, the, talking about COVID and responding to COVID has um, has dominated the time and the discussion, but it, it's, it's such an important thing to be talking about it and, and talking about how schools are, are uh, doing what they can to to, um, to have students uh, continue with their academic careers and continue with research, but do it in a, in a way that protects them and the surrounding communities. It's just uh, such an important thing. Well, I'll be bold and, and, and invite myself back, and then I'll also tease a topic that we should probably have a, a conversation uh, for your listeners at some point about the CARES Act and what the impact it made to the economic engines that our schools in Massachusetts Rhode Island and what a potential CARES Act too could look like um, you know, I don't dare put it in a recording that the, the White House and, and the House are speaking today because it won't be true next week. But we have our fingers crossed and hopefully we'll have some success because to keep these institutions alive and being the economic engines, there is going to be additional support. Our delegations, both um, in Massachusetts Rhode Island, did yeoman's like work to get us substantial dollars um, to help assist with the impact. But in, I know in our case, it was less than 20 cents on the dollar in terms of losses and expenses related to COVID. So I'm done. We will book that, and, right. and I completely agree. Uh, we're lucky that our our delegations, the Massachusetts delegation and Rhode Island delegation, very fortunate, get higher ed, understand higher ed, and understand the importance of it. So we will definitely do that. So thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to Acom Insight. We will be back with a new episode next week. Be sure to listen and share.